Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're going to continue our American Underground series, and today we're going to get into the the topic um, that we meant to get to last time, but uh, the Kennedys derailed that. But we'll get to the beatniks here in a minute. First, how is the uh, weather in Colorado? It is very nice. You know, I, I feel I feel boring, honestly, when you ask this question. <laughs> For the sake of the listeners, it is you can just assume generally it's some pleasant low humidity temperature between about 50 and 75 and it's sunny so it is another day swamp cooler is in storage officially swamp cooler yes was disconnected i've learned a lot about sprinklers and evaporative coolers since moving here these are two things that in appalachia nobody has why why would you have a fancy thing to take care of your lawn and you live in a swamp you don't need a swamp cooler so yep yeah that's all put away for the winter. It's uh, delightfully brisk here, at least in the morning. <laughs> so and you're then, saying uh, it's like 83 or yeah, you got up to got up in the low 80s yesterday, but you know we cool <laughs> in the morning. You, you go out, you get your, you find your pleasures where you can. Yeah, you know? good. That's good. And so yeah, so we're we're keeping on here. So all right, well, we're we're gonna go back into the 50s. We got into the 60s last time, but we got to get to the late, go back to the late 50s to pick up where we left off and. This is going to lead into a broader discussion of uh, substance abuse and rising crime war- rates. But as with most things, um, it begins with poets. And, <laughs> and so we're going to talk about the beats, the beat generation and the beat nicks right now. So, uh, Adam, why don't you tell the folks at home uh, what, what, what we're talking about here? The beat nicks are a couple names that you probably recognize, at least from a book you might have wanted to have read when you were in high school, or maybe you've just heard the names or something. You've certainly seen this style because it was aped in in a lot of different pop culture venues in the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s. So if you see somebody reciting poetry in a in a low-lit room while wearing a black turtleneck and, and maybe a beret, that's, that's aping the beatniks. And they're commonly identified couple names would be Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, as well as adjacent to this is Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters as people who are going to form a movement of art production, mainly literary, in San Francisco in the late 50s, beginning in the late 50s, and centered really around a place called City Lights Bookstore. None of that sounds like it's going to have a nationwide impact, but Part of the case we're going to make here throughout the series, but today, is how these changes in culture that are not in the 1950s quite yet, changes in pop culture, both reflect but also determine what America becomes in the future. And Mm -hmm. to start with the beatniks is to start back before this style of living, of how you ca- how you carry yourself, how you relate to broader society spreads in the 60s into a musical style, fashion, mm-hmm. lots of things. They're going to affect normal people. So the beatniks are one of our best sources for what are going to turn into by, you know, 1968, 1969, the hippies. Yeah, this these are these books that everybody either pretended to read and certainly pretended to like. And it it comes on down into the day like, oh, I'm reading on the road. Like, no, you're not. You're just 
you know, <laughs> you know oh naked lunch no it, it, it's, it's it's trash you yeah. didn't enjoy that oh boy yeah and and william s bros is yeah and we i i forgot to put him in the outline but i mean we should talk about him that's a whole separate fascinating little thing i mean i would i would say this is that i have seen some revisionism on the beatniks from the right just about jack kerouac but that is a piece of something that you have to yeah be aware of right I, think, well, is, I mean kerouac gets it only because he's just sort of libertarian yes and so he just wants to be left alone the, the conservatives still not realizing they're not going to leave you alone <laughs> right even if you go to big sur which is <laughs> right. right okay so the, the coast of california ravishingly beautiful big sur my favorite jack kerouac book I did read them. I was I was I was a sensitive young man, right? <laughs> I I did read those. I read the books. But I had to read them all but got way into Hunter S. Thompson, which explains a lot of things. Speaking of stuff that, that should be that should be good, but it's just cringe when you that, get older. That sure does explain so much. So yeah, I I was just a pure sensitive young man. I was not I was not gonzo in any way. The Kerouac. My first job is a journalist. Ironically, yeah. How did, how did that? That just occurred to me as we were recording this. And here you are today. You're a media personality, right? Of indeterminate origins. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I await the call to war room. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Please, Steve Bannon. I know you listen. Right. <laughs> but what what you're dealing with in Kerouac, and so if you see this, this is kind of an online sort of an impulse. But if you see this, something to know is that if any character <laughs> that I just tipped my hand there, historical person <laughs> or character, if any character has a tangential connection to Roman Catholicism, guaranteed that in America, Roman Catholics will pick up on that and promote him as a true Roman Catholic. Okay. Mm. And and that is that is an impulse that Lutherans also partake of just obviously less often because we have a much smaller, we're one thirtieth the size of the Roman Catholic Church in America, is that it's sort of like an it's sort of like an immigrant pride story. Like he, well, yes, he was a beatnik, but but really he was a he was a good French Catholic boy from Massachusetts. Well, I mean, you know, our our less interesting version of that's been Sass, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, and so and so sometimes sometimes our immigrant success stories don't even turn out to be Lutheran. <laughs> they they just tan no, he's he's a Presbyterian, but you know he's uh, he was uh, he we walked by an LCMS church once. Right, he's like it's like Lacroix Lutheranism, right? It's like you know right. this is this is apple Michelle, flavored. It was next Michelle to an apple. Michelle Bachman can like literally denounce the Book of Concord in an interview, <laughs> and it's like our our greatest Lutheran politician. That's our girl. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Only yeah. Yeah, only the old heads remember Michelle Bachman. <laughs> but yeah, is that that's going to be something that you want to watch out for is that very often what people are doing when they're when they're analyzing pop culture or we could call in this case literature is somewhere a, in America it's always related to pop culture. It may not be pop, but it's but it's right. related, it's going to feed into it. Right. And that's, look, I know this is all bait to get me to uh comment explicitly on c.s lewis and his profession <laughs> and living out of his faith <laughs> but i'm not uh, going to do that i'm not going to do that but what what's going on there is that you need to you need to recognize that if you're going to just accept the framework where okay high culture somehow means whatever you were told by 
the people who buy books yes. for Barnes and Noble, you're you're already you're already losing. You're 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 already you've already lost perspective that you should have had mm. on commenting on American life or being able to analyze things thoughtfully. And there's some of the same tragedy for me, therefore, with a guy like Jack Kerouac, who I believe is much more talented than Allen Ginsberg. I mean, I, oh, just, I mean, yeah, there's there's no question about right, that. Put it right out. Like yeah, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg's poetry is trash. Always was, always has been, always will be. But that Kerouac has some of the same tragedy as later on a David Foster Wallace does by having immense talent, but accepting certain cultural or ideological frameworks that are really not going to be yeah. able to offer anything besides the, you know, the, the compelling vision of life is being away from people, doing drugs and walking around in nature. Like that's well, the we, best we can we, do. We talked about Cormac McCarthy a few episodes right. ago, and he yep. falls directly into this kind of idea too. I mean, not the specific ones of the beatniks, but the framework you're talking about here of an right. author kind of being trapped by his own literary analysis, I guess. Yeah. And in and, and, and an artist, you know, it's kind of like, I don't need my artist to be a philosopher king. So I'm not saying that they're, they're failing to have deep insights or like, if only Kerouac had read Aquinas, like everything would have been different. <laughs> right. But, but it's like, um, the thing that the philosopher king needs to realize is that artists matter a lot more than he does, generally speaking, because people listen to music and they watch movies and they, some, some of them mm -hmm. even still read books. So how an artist presents life is going to matter a lot more for vastly more people. And I think that's always been true. Yeah. And people forget this. And I yeah. think that we run into this a lot when we we try to say even theologically analyze every fiction text, for example, or, <laughs> yes. you know, only ever read, say, theological books. I do think that you need literature in order to understand what it means to be human. Yeah. And therefore, to be a good theologian, I don't think you can be a good theologian if you don't read, say, Pickwick Papers or David Copperfield. You need to learn how to be human first <laughs> or somewhere, maybe not first, but somewhere in the middle there. Somewhere learn in there. About, learn something about human interaction and human kindness first. Uh, and yet literature and specifically poetry in the modern era has been so analyzed and reanalyzed through various lenses that... There's no such thing as reading for edification or enjoyment anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when you were saying that, I was like, I, I don't want people to like take this and now say, okay, well, I, I shall read through Charles Dickens in order to become a human. Is that <laughs> is that when when literature and and this is actually you know I mean t speaking of C.S. Lewis, Lewis and Tolkien are the first generation where people are studying English language books in a university. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. And 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 there's a problem with that. And and they tried to turn it into sort of a study of a of an ancient literature, heavy focus on old English. Lewis, obviously, a heavy focus on on Middle English. The problem there is that when you take that and you're gonna now make that, you're gonna study that the way that you study classical literature, is that it it loses that human dimension or that immediacy that literature should have. And I think that you that you sense when you read the best writing that Kerouac does, that it doesn't turn into another sort of, you know, just trad reflex. Exactly. This is a more natural process is what yes. I'm talking is what we're right. talking about here. Yep. Yeah. You're not studying this to be human. You sort of become better by simply reading it. Yes. If that makes sense. Like right. You, you don't have to be that intentional about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess everything can be misused, but 
to think about reading literature as the way that you would entertain yourself rather than as a homework assignment. Yeah, and, it, and this is and this right. has happened even in the more shallow uh, end of the spectrum, you know, with sermons built around Spider-Man movies or whatever. You know, this is this this kind of approach to literature, art, media in general has infected everything, even the the normie of normies. And they don't even know it. I mean, sermons sermons based on on Spider-Man movies, is anyone does anyone actually fall for this? This is what I this is what I wonder, right? When they, especially when they phone it in during the summer and they just like show a movie. <laughs> right. Okay. And then they, and then they have a sermon based on the movie that they showed. Does anyone, is anyone actually invested in this? I mean, if, when we are reducing everything to the lowest con- common denominator of pop culture, do the people who are the lowest common denominator actually buy into it? Well, that's a fair question. But you know, I, I kind of think now they're, they they really sort of do, and but I don't necessarily blame the 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 movie sermon. It's just our, our soul, our form of media is this most self centered kind of way where everything has a hidden meaning, and so now it's kind of like what we talked about with uh, Rebel Without a Cause and the teenage movement last time. People start to see themselves in media. Yeah. So now, so now every middle aged discontented mother on Facebook is posting Beth Dutton Yellowstone memes and going, "Yes, Queen, that's totally me." <laughs> and that's another form of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, but but as far as the sermon goes specifically, no, I don't believe anybody's actually taking that seriously because you can't take it seriously without the Holy Spirit. And I'm not so sure that He's in there. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm wondering is if if we're going to describe a process of cultural decline and we're going to source it in, you know, people people doing drugs in San Francisco in yeah. 1959, if we're going to do that and and that and <laughs> we are indeed doing that, is there a floor to the process that this yeah, is what yeah. I continually wonder? Is there yeah. a floor? <laughs> or are they going to stop? How low can it go? I mean, look, the your grandpa reading Zane Grey novels is so much more highly elevated than whatever's happening. Yeah, it's true today. Yeah, and and wow, I mean, this goes back to really even the the Border War series and some other things we've talked about. It's almost as if we have a grand scheme here. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, wh- yeah, where where is the floor? Well, okay, you think five years ago this has got to be the floor, but then you've got. The Zoomers watching two videos at a time on these little shorts, and I don't know. I don't know where the. I don't know if, right. we, were, if we if we reach the floor until we reach just a series of grunts, right? Breathing through their mouths. Yeah, yeah. We're almost there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my grandpa did literally. I mean, when he died, they had to take away his collection of westerns. It was specifically westerns, mm-hmm. and it was basically a, a it was a pickup bed load of Westerns, it, it, that was not high literature. You know, the, the man no. had a high school degree and that's what he did in his free time, right? So if that's lowest common denominator or or somewhere around it in 1962, where am I in 2023? I'm not breathing through my nose. I'm looking at multiple screens at the same time. So I, I I think that this is where when you're talking about causation in history, one thing to keep clear is that whenever you're talking about human actors, they can set things in motion they have no understanding of. And I think that that, that role of, of trying to understand like, no, mm-hmm. it wasn't in Allen Ginsberg's, you know, sick little heart to <laughs> make us all into mouth breathing, multiple video screen watching drones. 
something else was in his intention, could that lead? Because can things go downhill from somewhere farther up the hill? Yes, of course they can. Does everyone understand just how steep the hill is? No, of course not. So I don't know what I'm doing if I push the boulder downhill. I just know that I'm pushing the boulder downhill. That's all I know at the time. Right. So for most of the popular culture, you know, the beatnik just becomes some dude or lady with horn rim glasses. Yeah, right. Right. But what we begin to see is the beginnings of reductionism in in literature, avant-garde forms, and that is coupled then with prevalent drug use. Before we talk about drugs, what do you, what do you, because the the audience knows gospel reductionism. (laughs) That's true. What do you, what do you mean reduction? Do you mean emotionally? What do you mean reduction? Okay. Certainly there's emotionally, but even in form, even in, even down to, okay, let's take Burroughs, for example, and Naked Lunch, even the organization of literature has now changed. So you don't have a through narrative. You have a, uh, a, a basic stream of consciousness kind of thing going on. Right. The forms taken in poetry are not the classic forms. It's more, much more prosaic to the point of, in some cases, being nonsensical. And so you have a much more subjective approach to the literary form. Now, you had examples of this, whatever, Sound and Fury, whatever, but they're really going to going to kind of push this. Now, Kerouac's a little different. He takes on a narrative style to his poetry in a way that Ginsburg won't always do. Burroughs, structurally, in his most significant novel, is going to be very different. But I would also say just in the way he writes. I It, it is seen as profound, but you end up having meanings that can't, that there's no way they can be discerned. It's, right. it's debatable whether there is really any intended meaning at all. Right. And so it's the triumph of the subjective. Now, despite what the literary critics being in the 1920s and 30s wanted to say, your great poets had an intended meaning with what they wrote. <laughs> and it's clear to anybody who is remotely literate what they're trying to say. <laughs> I, and I think you have deliberate obfuscation here in the beatniks yeah and yes and and the question is are they being brilliant or is it just a mask for lack of talent (laughs) is it is it profundity or is it just a feigned profundity yeah and and i would i i think in the case of burroughs that's easiest to answer and and i I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to answer it via Ginsburg because I think the answer is too obvious. In the case of Burroughs, it's easiest to answer because what you can see that he does, and and it's important here to realize that his method, which is essentially like, you know, if I wrote five pages, I throw them up in the air and then they fall however they fall down organizationally, and then that's what gets printed. Mm-hmm. And that that is that is driven both by his by his varieties of drug use, particularly heroin use, but also by his understanding of what he what source he he has for what he's doing, which is yeah. which is more or less explicitly demonic. I mean, I mean, okay. by his right by so, his own accounting. Yeah, but he he openly admits it. Naked lunch. We keep going back to that. You know, it's very obvious, especially in that work. But I would remind the audience that his first novel is called Junkie. Yeah, right. And it's and and also he dies in Lawrence, Kansas. I don't know if there's any 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 spiritual or significant meaning there, but <laughs> there is a poetic meaning. 
All, all, all the best Kansans or most interesting Kansans, like Wild Bill Hickok, you will notice <laughs> don't die in Kansas. I don't know if yeah. you've thought about that. Yeah. You know, Burroughs is a man who, even as a child, is interested in the occult. Yes. And he finds his way from the occult into drug use. And now, now, am I saying that he was practicing magic and then encouraged his drug use? No, I'm saying that he went from the occult to the use of drugs and then everything that he was doing gets magnified from that. Right. Into deeper, deeper acquaintance. Exactly. His entire life with the occult. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're going to find is there is, has always been throughout history, a, a connection between drug use and the occult. And because the beatniks come at a time where, you know, they're going to come 20 years before the satanic panic or, you know, 30, 20, 25, yep. 30 years. Yep. They're going to come up at a time where they're using drugs. They're heavily into the occult and then they're going to peak. And then a few years after that, you're going to have a big, a bunch of their successors or people who read them rather people who read them were influenced by them saying, Oh, the occult was all mumbo jumbo. There's no, there's no danger there. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that is, that that's a, that's a failure that that is easy to do in uh, for modern people because we we are used to being entertained so it's easy to be mm. ironic about things right yes. because everything is at this remove the problem there is that it's simply not reflected in the life of somebody like burroughs burroughs is a <laughs> a a sexual maniac of a wide variety of expressions throughout his life he's openly involved in the occult, even when people are interviewing him as an old man mm -hmm. in Lawrence, Kansas. He's talking about magical things he's trying to do in his area. And he also rather, rather clearly, and this goes back to the talent question, it's not just that he has this strange narrative style. He is obsessed with death. And that only gets expressed under a variety of and here's kind of a, this is a literary word. You may be familiar with it. You may not if you're listening, but he can really only express the same idea of obsession with freedom that leads to death in terms of pastiche. Mm. So he's got a set of books set in ancient Egypt, including the most famously or, or impressively the Western lands, that novel. That's going to be a sort of pastiche of historical fiction. But a book that where this is really easy to see is, and you set it next to Junkie, or you set it next to Naked Lunch. And mm -hmm. those are more autobiographical, but you take his Western book, The Place of Dead Roads, and you realize that what happens in such an artist is that he can figure out the genre conventions of a Western or the genre conventions of historical fiction or whatever. And replicate them verbally. Right. He for the folks at home, that's what pastiche is. Imitating another style is. Or, yep. or even another author. That's right. And and But what he can't do is take the themes that don't have to do with a freedom that will lead to death, right? Which is exactly what Romans 1 says about the kind of life that Burroughs mm -hmm. lived, right? He can't do anything other than put forth the idea that that's what you want. That's what you want. That's mm. what you want. And that's going to be replicated no matter what genre he's working in, what setting he's working in. It's all going to be freedom that leads to death. And that's what you're trying to maximize in your life. You know, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, we think about 
the beatniks and then the later hippies and we think just in terms of marijuana and we'll talk about marijuana in a minute but what guys like burrows are are doing is they are looking for a transcendent experience and like you're saying here this specifically here leading to death and so he is going to be going after what today we would call the meme drugs i mean he's in mexico and then on into south america in the 60s looking for ayahuasca yeah so that he can um have mystical experience and other magical abilities yeah and the let and and the letters from this journey between him and ginsburg are actually were actually published in the 60s uh, in a book and so it's not like oh we discovered in 10 years after his death that he was into this weird stuff like no it, it, it he is documenting it all and promoting it all uh, right there. And, yeah. you know, yeah, it, it, it's interesting to observe how things that have definitely been mainstreamed or at least mainstreamed in people's awareness, if not people's, if not yet people's use all pop up with less ultimate effectiveness mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And these kinds of figures are therefore they're, they're really just kind of an avant-garde. They're not in a way they don't remain weird. Unfortunately, <laughs> they, they become the forefathers of the America that is to come. Right. We also haven't mentioned he probably killed someone. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> 100% he did. Yeah. And he tried to kill more people, but because it yeah. was via sympathetic magic, you know, <laughs> right. that has, that has, uh, we would say varying levels of effectiveness. Right. Being in Mexico didn't hurt either. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Go now, ahead. You know, the, um, so we have to talk about the drug use and even even what people would, especially today, not, although not necessarily in the 20th century, consider a milder drug. You know, why the marijuana use, why the hard drug use in the case of Burroughs and others, you know, why is it so prevalent among among the beats? Is it seeking a, a different experience? Is it trying to detach from your human experience? Is it the desire to be not in control? to be liberated if we want to use their kind of language. Yeah. I I think I think a small amount of it involves exploration. Like uh, the the same thing that would push you to explore a wilderness area of America would push you into drug use. Yeah. And and that I I think that's a small amount of it. I think that's essentially misguided, but I think it's wrong, but the the same impulse is there. I think most of it and you'll find it in these people's lives because one thing that is a that is a consistent theme is that they are like other people the last time drug use was popular in in that part of the country during let's say frontier days they are almost they are always people running from one or many things mm-hmm. in the life that they left behind and therefore drug use is a way of the way that Timothy Leary at Harvard is going to phrase this in the sixties of, of dropping out. Now it's going to be yeah. presented as tuning into something else and, yep. and LSD will particularly be used that way. But marijuana, I think just to start off also because that, that is completely mainstream. Now marijuana is, is dropping out. It's, it's exiting the constraints and the difficulties and the problems of everyday life and surrendering surrendering yourself to some other force that will enable you yeah maybe positively you're experiencing something better but 
negatively speaking and predominantly what you're doing is you are just going into a state of numbness if you can. Right. I mean, you live in Colorado where of course it's legal and you've seen the repercussion. I was in Illinois at the time that recreational use was legalized there. Yeah. I live in Arkansas where it's not technically legal, but getting a medical marijuana card is probably easier than getting a hunting license. Yep. Yep. And so, right. You're, you're going to see the effects of this and we already do in a broad scale in American culture. The beats and then the hippies and even down to some contemporary figures like a Joe Rogan or something, they are sort of lionized for their for their use or Tim, Timothy Leary and seen as heroes because they abuse substances, which is a strange thing, right? It's kind of this bizarro version of smoking cigarettes makes you look cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Except right. cigarettes do make you look cool. <laughs> well, I, I think that one thing that it relies on, too, is the dominance, like we've talked about before, the dominance of affect over everything mm-hmm. else. Yes. Rather than asking yourself, okay, what does this substance do to my body? Do Does nicotine do the same thing to my body as THC does to my body? Does drinking alcohol do the same thing to my body as drinking, you know, whatever mineral water do to my body? And people don't really operate on that basis. They operate on the basis. And this is why pictures of the beats would be familiar stylistically, even if you've never heard of them. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen Allen Ginsberg, even if you've never listened to his poetry or were aware of who he was, is that the style matters more than anything else. So if the style is purportedly relaxed or it is an alternative to striving or it is a pleasant communal life over a difficult individual seeking for success, then that style matters. And this goes back to the thing of artists mattering more than philosophers. That matters a lot more than anyone's rational capacity to say, okay, what if I do this for the next five years, more or less once or more a day? What mm-hmm. What's going to happen to me? Will I become paranoid? Will I lose the will to do much of anything in my life? All of that is means that I think today we are entering, and certainly in Colorado, this is really easy to see because of how long it's been legal relative to other places. Sure. So we were we were where Arkansas now is, you know, 15 years ago or right, more, right? Right. And that once it became fully legal, first, it was a tourist destination. That's not really true anymore. But it is a an everyday experience of you didn't understand what you were doing when you pushed that boulder downhill. Like you, you, right. you had no idea of all the other things that would deteriorate when you did that. You just, you just said, no, this is a matter of freedom or this is a matter of conscience or very specifically, this is this is a really great way to make a lot more revenue because it's it's a whole different realm with yeah. the same economic dynamics as liquor stores. So we did that. What else happens? Well, something that really spikes is all other forms of drug use. Mm-hmm. Now, no, nobody talks about that at the time. Never. No, because it was always, you know, somebody's good uncle who's like, it's a gateway drug. And they're like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And I think I think if you go back to it is is reefer madness, the 30s. Is that one that? Yeah. Is that that gets mocked 
like you're you know you you're crazy and you're just worried 36 i believe there you go the, the people can you know google check me on they that they can check those things but yeah i mean i think that we this we having become collectively and and in our own minds in we're very cool in being perpetual teenagers always saying that mm-hmm. you know this is just paranoid adults trying to limit our freedom that what we do is we end up replicating teenager like mistakes where we seek a freedom that we don't understand because we're teenagers but but certainly you know a dirty old man like William S Burroughs knows <laughs> this is a freedom unto death right and that that's what i'm opening myself up to and i can make fun of reefer madness all day and say that it was hysterical or something or it was you know it was the drug version of a satanic panic but in everyday life that turns out to be true <laughs> right right yeah um, ev- yeah, yeah. If, if i could uh kind of you know talk about drug use and how it affects the genres that guys like burrows are in and how that's related a little bit today so i can finally put that that arts degree uh, to work but yes, uh, sir. i got a, i got a few we're all that's justifying okay. it yeah it's right. fine it's fine you know it's no coincidence that especially hallucinogenic drug users and degenerates like Burroughs would latch onto something like surrealism, mm-hmm. which is, you know, anti-real at its heart. And, or even something like satire, which the older I get, the more I, if satire is done good, it's good. But most of it is just heavy handed and annoying to me now. <laughs> like you just, you just come across bratty. Yes. You know? yeah. Right. Bratty. Exactly. But if we're, if we're honest, the majority of our popular art today, although it might not hit all the classic lines, is surrealist in nature. Uh, I, I would, you know, um, if if you move away from painting, okay, and you move away from just the boring kind of you know three act plot structure in a movie, the visuals are all anti real, and or I keep saying anti real to coin a phrase there, but uh, that's not really you know what that means. But anyway. I mean, you take even like your average popcorn superhero movie that's 100% CGI. To me, that looks more like a surrealist thing than anything or an expressionist sort of thing because it's not real. It's even blurry, you know, like an impressionist painting almost. Right. And and so it's it's no coincidence then that our art begins to reflect that. And then as, um, you know, it used to be it was the 60s or 70s, you're going to get high and if you're into the art community, you're going to go see an art film, and it might be good. But now, you can run out of the dispensary, get some edibles, and you're going to watch the Avengers and have a very similar experience. It's <laughs> and and while somebody like Dolly is is undeniably talented, there's also just not a lot going on there. If you're honest with yourself, right? And, and everything else he did, you know, walking around an anteater and whatever coffin filled with cauliflower or whatever he rode around in the. Uh, and and it just sounds like we're trying to just simply be traditionalists for traditionalists' sake. But the the point is, is even in the last episode, as we talked about the degradation of American culture and the tearing down of traditional things. Well, now, you know, the e- even an image, even a concrete image, isn't really something you're guaranteed, right? And it's certainly not in a surrealist author. But today, when everything you see, virtually everything you see, is animated in such a way that it's spongy or rubber almost. There, there's just it, it all lends itself to a very um, unstable worldview, a very unstable way of living and and processing information. Right. And I, I think that 
this is this is a reason that you know this is not a pro anime podcast is because the idea that cartoons would define most of your visual input that that really whatever regardless of what the themes are that is not finally visually distinctive from you know the new barbie movie being completely surrealist right mm-hmm. being completely composed of pastiche and satire you are still you are still obsessed with facsimiles of reality and the problem that that has for the soul is that it makes the soul unable to tell the difference between facsimiles and reality and that has repercussions throughout your life so i mean one thing that you can see with somebody like burrows is that he can express his confusion or his longing for death or his desire to bring other people into that longing for death in all kinds of different genres. I mean, that that is his talent. But what you're looking for in art is not merely the talent to somehow like replicate certain genre conventions in the same way that Barbie can replicate what Greta Gerwig believes are, you know, the hallmarks of the patriarchy. You know, it is a pretty powerful meme there, Adam, that um, you was kind of under, under all this. You basically said the cottagecore movement is pastiche. Yeah, well, and, I mean, and it that, is. By definition, yeah, right. well, by definition that, it is. It's, that is the issue I have with a lot of trad stuff mm-hmm. is that it is it is it is the expression of people obsessed with images. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so the the, the internal reality is not there. Matter. Yeah, it's not. The, it's not. And it's not going to be there. Right. Right. It's just an aping from people who are who are defined by superficial matters. And that proceeds not necessarily in the viewer, but certainly in the artist, right? Uh, not in the reader, but in the artist. That proceeds out of an artist who is fundamentally sick. Therefore, like you said, he can only produce surreal things. Mm. He can't tell you something real about childhood like you might get in, you know, Oliver Twist or or crime for that matter, <laughs> right? He can't tell you that. He can only tell you surreal things. Yeah. And uh it's it's true. So so the guy who's walking around in a three-piece suit and a monocle doesn't necessarily have what it possesses, you know. It doesn't actually make you Tony. <laughs> you you are not and you never will be a British gentleman, okay? Because <laughs> right. Because the guy with the monocle was also capable of, you know, subjugating like the Assam province of India. Okay, <laughs> right. Um, you're not him. A man can dream, though, you know. <laughs> but until you're willing to get on a steamership and go make it happen, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. Just put yeah. on a button down like the rest of America and right. go about your day. All right. <laughs> All right. This has been a fun one. Uh, so we got um, a few minutes left here, yeah. and so. The American art scene is being, and we've mostly talked about literature here, and perhaps down the road we'll talk about other stuff. It's kind of a good break from us. We, we've been talking about movies and music for the last couple episodes. Yep. But the rest of America and the rest of the world you know, is undergoing some changes as well. So while the beatniks are doing their thing and taking heroin and murdering folks, <laughs> um, we uh, America is becoming entrenched in things overseas. Yeah. And and we talked about that in terms of decolonization, that America fills a power vacuum that exists both 
because of its sheer good fortune during the Second World War, materially speaking, along with the loss of a will to govern the parts of the world that that previously, particularly France and Britain, but also Portugal, among others, had governed, and that America fills that gap where the Soviet Union does not or, or where the power is contested. And that the flashpoint there, as we're going to pick up, especially in the next episode, is going to be Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, as well as most famously Vietnam. The issue, though, is that when you're thinking about the conflicts that America is going to enter, you're going to be a lot less surprised by, and you'll be able to understand many more things if you understand who those Americans are, both the young guys who maybe are much more involved in drug use than their parents were. Therefore, you're going to get a lot more drug use by frontline troops in Vietnam than you did in Korea or in the Second World War. You always have drug use by soldiers. War is never a pleasant, beautiful thing the way that some people imagine, but that's going to be highly exacerbated, much increased during Vietnam. But you're also going to get things that are sort of horrible to contemplate, no matter how you feel about marijuana legalization, like the reality of fragging, which is the murder of officers by by their troops, which will reach nearly astronomical proportions during Vietnam. All of that is to say that the reason that we're trying to connect pop culture and pop culture change and trying to say, hey, you know, this didn't come from nowhere when a guy that gets drafted for Vietnam in 1966 is a littler kid. Yeah, this is more underground. But by 1966, things that the beatniks were telling you or things that William S. Burroughs was writing about are now being mainstreamed in culture. And that even figures who were who were a lot more popular than William S. Burroughs ever was, and who had represented a sort of different or more innocent vision of what it meant to be alive in America, like Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, he himself is heavily involved in drug use. And that's being reflected in his music, as well as his own personal life in the 60s and 70s, as America is also taking a different and darker turn, both internationally, but also on a personal level. You know, Brian Wilson's a good, you know, yeah, <laughs> metaphor for the rise and fall of America. Oh, I mean, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's it's kind of all right there in his life. <laughs> Beautiful, sunny, harmonic, all the way to just, you know, uh, incongruent you Dark, know, markings by inflamed, the end. Yeah. obese, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's all right there in that man who is take heart, America. He's still alive. So, yeah, as of uh, this recording, as of this recording. That could change by, you know, the Monday when this gets released. But yeah, it's all it's all there in Brian Wilson. And and it and it's part of something that I think when you think about America projecting its power overseas, you always want to keep in mind is that people's idea of us is much more early Brian Wilson than what he became. Mm-hmm. So it's much more American mistakes involve involve being naive but not being weak. American mistakes involve being arrogant, but not being stupid necessarily. And something occurs at the beginning of the month in which President Kennedy is assassinated. And this is why I wanted to end here to kind of book like bookend what we did in the last episode is that an assassination that in some ways will actually change more, much more immediately is the, is the coup that overthrows President Diem in South Vietnam. The reason that that matters so much 
is that he's really the only guy who can hold South Vietnam together. He's Catholic. Buddhists are being persecuted under his reign. Some of them are going to be used by communist North Vietnam to help subvert that reign. But really, he's overthrown by generals who are jealous of his power and jealous of the way that he wields it, also that he is acting as a civilian despite his own military experience. His overthrow on November 1st, 1963, so that's exactly 21 days before President Kennedy's assassination, so disturbs everything and disturbs South Vietnam's ability to stave off communist aggression. The communists themselves are shocked by it. I mean, they say like, I, I guess we will invade South Vietnam, which is ultimately <laughs> right. going to be the precipitating cause of America formally committing ground troops right. in 65. I guess, I guess we're going to do it. I mean, I didn't expect us to be able to do it. And one thing that now that we have those North Vietnamese, those communist records, is that they, they say their Politburo, right? So kind of their central decision-making committee says about the DM coup, they say, we did not imagine the Americans could be so stupid. <laughs> right. Is that there's going to be this incessant theme of Americans sabotaging themselves. Right. Even the French were smart enough not to, uh, you know, to just <laughs> right. sort of hear you, Vietnam, you take it. Right. Exactly. Right. And so they're like, I can't believe they did that. You know, they have they have so many resources and, and things are going so well for them. And the South Vietnamese had actually successfully moved their civilian population into these controlled hamlets that made it easier to tell who was Viet Cong and who was not. All of that was going well. And then the Americans just let this coup happen. That idea of self-sabotage, I think, is something that when you're thinking about, okay, why is why has the last hour not just been, you know, the colonel and myself, you know, complaining about how the youths are are eating, you know, gummy. Think about it. they're eating child, childlike food that gets them high. Why is this not just grumpy old men complaining? Is it something you can see that is going to begin to link what is growing in pop culture, what begins with the beats, but then grows in pop culture throughout the 60s to the way that we behave internationally is that we engage on on every level in self-sabotage. Yeah. We're our own worst enemy. Always, right? In a, in a way that we would now describe as addictive behavior or, or compulsive behavior, we would turn it just into a mental health problem instead of a spiritual problem. We would turn it into a problem of, well, if these drugs weren't available, which is which is partly true, but there's already an orientation to destroy yourself before you take sure. the drugs that has to be there. So all of that, I think, can kind of come comes together in terms of self-sabotage, which is how you see life play out for a Jack Kerouac, less so for a Ginsburg, a little less so for William S. Burroughs. But there's always a, a, a self-destructiveness that appears. And then when it gets put forth in art or music or, you know, movies, it's going to manifest as encouraging everybody to self-sabotage. Right. And in the self-sabotage, though, now, you know, if the Vietnamese can go, hey, how could Americans be so stupid? We see the self-sabotage. And this is really what comes out of a lot of the literature that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. Self-sabotage is seen as a heroic move now in, in the same way as in the same way as because it's suicide. 
And so this this either kind of and kind of the lighter side, the sort of the bumbling character, you know, is an example of this, but also the tragic character who whose tragedy befalls him through his own faults is is sort of exalted in culture now. Um, because the hero is completely demonized. And so why do we care if it's self-sabotage? You want to be this sort of victimized sad soul. Yeah, you want you want to be a loser of yeah. some kind. You, you said you it want better. to be. Yeah. You want to be a loser. I mean, and and because the hero as such is is not trustworthy. He's right. He's probably even a fascist, you know. <laughs> right? Because because he has because he he conquers his own laziness through effort or because he you know, exerts himself and tries without <laughs> irony or something, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's it, you know, going on the self-sabotage thing, it's also funny to me. I think there's also part of us that instinctively wants to believe that it was a grand conspiracy to open the door to communists. And it and now the communists certainly took advantage of it. Yeah, but, right. But we might have just been stupid or naive. I, I, that... That that's a great question. Even if there is a grand design, it sort of doesn't matter. Right. I mean, the old guard is still okay. I mean, you're very early into the Kennedy administration here. And so wartime, you still have a lot of the old guard at the oh, time yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, big time. We'll get into McNamara and the new and the new guard mm-hmm. in, in Vietnam a little bit later. General LeMay, who is technically old guard, but he's related to this story, but I'm jumping the gun here. Anyway, but yeah, you know, we want to kind of believe that, oh, no, it was actually just some genius nefarious plot when a lot of stuff could have just been people bumbling. Yeah. And and I don't I don't even want to present that as just I, I think sometimes people's response to the idea that something is a conspiracy, you know, they, they know that's sort of like off limits. You're not allowed to think that whatever. So then they say, well, you know, it could just be stupidity and it could. Yeah. But but I but. I think it's easier to see that there's a there's another alternative. There there is there there is conspiracy, but the level on which that functions is is right. never I mean, is I never mean, the, the, the coup is deliberate conspiracy. Yes, there's no right. joke there. But, exactly. Right. But the series of mistakes we made, how sincere are they? Correct. And I think especially in the way we go about Vietnam, even though I still will make the case that we won, is that I think McNamara is sincerely trying to, although misguided, is trying a new approach to bean counting in the war. Right. Terrible consequences. Right. Not necessarily stupid, but very misguided. Yes. In a way. And I so I think the concept of if you if you have conspirators, you also have stupid people. I think you need to operate also with at least one more category, which is the blind. And yeah. when you when you talk about blindness you're not saying that the guy can't do anything. You're saying he can't see what he's doing. Right. Or you're not saying that he doesn't have anything in mind the way a conspirator might for to overthrow President DM, but you're saying he doesn't understand what the repercussions of his actions will be. Right. And because he can't he can't observe anything that's go that's actually going on. So when you're thinking about blindness, I think that looks a lot more like what you would say is going on in William Burroughs' life. Or what you would say is going on in the way that America sort of falls into having to commit substantial numbers of ground troops to Vietnam as we get into 1964. They're realizing 
we're going to need to make this happen. And the reason we have to make this happen is because we we fell into this position. When we look back, we can realize, now, I mean, am I talking about a junkie or am I talking about the United States wandering into Vietnam? Sure. Yes, right? Is when I look back, I can say, why did I do that? Right. You know, or like that didn't, at the time, I didn't have to do that, but I did. So now I'm here. So now I only have horrible choices in front of me. Right. Absolutely. Right. Is like self-sabotage doesn't always involve, in fact, I think it rarely does somebody saying to himself, or if he's sabotaging somebody else saying, I I will do thus and so, and then I will end to ruin my life today. Yes. Yes. I have, I woke up today and I realized I hate everything and (laughs) I want to destroy it. Right. That's not how it goes is that you wake up and you, you stumble and now you're farther down the hill and you're all scraped up and you really can't get back up. So I, the choices now are which way do I want to keep falling? Yeah, absolutely. So in the last uh, few minutes here, what should we expect in the next episodes? Where are we going to go from here? Yeah, we're going to we're going to try to maintain the focus at the same time. In some ways, it'll get easier. We've been digging far underground. We're getting closer to the surface now. The 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 way that american pop culture is going to relate to both how the vietnam war progresses but but also and this is really important in a in a mass democracy in a in a time of mass media is how the public thinks about that war and that effort and where america is going because what you're going to get as these things get closer to the surface is that a country that had had not only relative peace and certainly peace on the home front will not only have to prosecute a a conscript dependent war in a foreign country but will also have to maintain peace at home and everything from race riots to the hippie movement are going to make that increasingly hard to do so when you're thinking about the kind of loss of will that mm-hmm. That is, that is behind every addiction problem, right? Is that is I, my willpower shrinks to nothing, okay? When that happens, whether for a nation or for an individual, what, what, how, does it, how does that play out? Because I think observing that process is going to be very enlightening for people just to give them ex- an example and to set it up for next time is that you said, you know, I think we won that war. I don't really think on a military level that's debatable. Right, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I don't I mean and that's that's what General Westmoreland who's who's kind of your your star-crossed George McClellan of of Vietnam very capable in his own way, but he's going to say that. He's like we didn't we didn't lose. We lost the will to win. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that's, you know, if you're talking about an individual with drugs or you're talking about a nation with its objectives that it has, right or wrong, whether you think we should have been there or not, once you're committed to a conflict, one one way that that can end is through a self-sabotage. So you don't lose on a battlefield. You're not fighting an enemy who can withstand attrition much longer than you can. You're just dealing with the fact that you kind of don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, you're you're just sick of struggling. And that that looks a lot more like America in Vietnam because it looks a lot more like America in the late 60s going into the 70s than anything else is that we just lose the will to exist. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, that is going to do it for us today. You have been listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us. Discernment, boldness, and compassion, Christian virtues sorely needed today. The Biblical Worldview Conference Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.